Welcome to episode number two of Embark Behavioral Health's Roadmap to Joy podcast, Mental Health Series 101. I'm Jake Sparks, the Embark Treatment Director, and today we have with us Rob Gent, our Chief Clinical Officer. So glad to be here. Glad to have you, and I'm glad to fill your wisdom that you'll depart unto us. Um, today is an exciting day because we are covering some really basic terms that Embark uses in in relation to treatment and mental health. And there's a lot of really abstract concepts, but if we found if we can boil them down to some really clear terms, um, then it, it helps us to be able to talk about all this easier. Uh, so what I want to do is just ask you to define some terms and questions for us and and link them all together. Terrific, Jake. What I appreciate is us being able to do this because a lot of this defining of these terms I'll take us a little bit more in depth to just the general when we talk about, oh, I need to go see a therapist. I, what I love to do is be able to dive a little bit deeper and mm. explain in, in these terms. Especially there's a lot like self-esteem. Well, what does that actually mean? What does a family work? Well, what does that actually mean? What are we really talking about? And um, it can be so hard for people to understand. So the first thing I want to ask, something we talk a lot about here at Embark is therapeutic relationship. So I want to understand how you think and talk about therapeutic relationship. Let's start off with the term even therapeutic. I think we hear that term thrown around constantly. Something's therapeutic. And uh, really defining the term is best done by understanding that therapeutic means to restore to health, to restore to health. And I often get the question or the, the thinking that I need to go see a therapist in order to engage in a therapeutic relationship. I need to see somebody who's licensed or qualified to be in a therapeutic relationship. And really, to restore to health, that even that definition, if we know how to be therapeutic or we could define what even health means and how we establish health and development, all of a sudden, who becomes a therapeutic relationship? Any intimate person in your life, maybe it's some parental figures, it's immediate relatives, it's adult figures, it's peers. So you're framing the therapeutic relationship as not just your provider and yourself and you hope that relationship is therapeutic. You're actually saying any of our relationships can and have the potentially to offer health and healing regardless of whether or not they have a degree hanging on the wall. <laughs> I'm saying that very thing. And I always, it makes me smile, but people were actually being healthy before there was the invention of the therapist, right? Before we had therapists and all that, actually. Somehow the people managed to be healthy, even without us great therapists. As, as ego pinch as that is, yeah, that actually families and friends and we developed these relationships and naturally they occur to be actually developmentally would help us to get to this place of real healing. And when we talk about health and growth, all of that, just knowing that what is a therapeutic relationship, I really like to define it in those terms. And if we learn how to do it that way and know what we're looking for, we're going to hopefully talk a little bit about development that we need to be able to understand. If I'm facilitating this therapeutic relationship, that comes with certain responsibilities to be able to do that. But it's pretty exciting to me is that as, as therapists, as a behavioral health company, we have the actual the opportunity to restore that, mm -hmm. to help families become therapeutic relationships. Some of the research I'm familiar with talks about the most important thing a therapist can do 
Uh, it's not about your modality or how great you are at teaching skills. A lot of the research is saying, actually, the therapeutic relationship is the single best predictor of positive outcomes for the client. And that that's my experience too, Jake. I really appreciate that. And so working um, actually closely with Scott Miller, PhD is his name. He's done a lot of research in the field over 40 years. And his work has been about feedback-informed treatment, really looking at client outcomes in the long term. And um, modalities and interventions are actually less than 1% of the variance of that change. But the greatest percentage of change is actually the therapeutic alliance, also known as the therapeutic relationship. And that's our best opportunities as therapists or helping professionals when we see how do we create long-term lasting yeah, I think that point's particularly poignant combined with your first point is that that therapeutic alliance or relationship doesn't have to just be with your therapist. So if I have a, a client that comes to see me, a, a lot of uh, progress that they can make, yes, is with me and my relationship with them, but how am I as a therapist facilitating the healing of their relationships as a whole with the client and their family and their partner or their parents? Really well said, Jake. Yeah. Well, because part of that therapeutic alliance is understanding that there's a there's an agreement on what the problem is or what we're struggling with. But one of the biggest factors is actually the bonding and the trust. That's not unique to a therapist and the client. You think about how many families they're looking to restore a sense of trust even with each other. And that's a huge, I mean, I'm sure yeah. you feel the same way. What a privilege it is for us to be able to facilitate Families restoring trust yeah. with one another. Now that relationship, that family systems becomes therapeutic. Yes. Not dependent on us. Right. And ultimately that's the goal of every therapist, right? Is to get yourself hired. So where the client's like, oh, great. I'm ready to move on and I love you, but I'm ready to live my life absent of therapy. Not Obviously some will need to continue to have mental health services, but... Um, our goal is to not make our clients dependent upon us for their connection. That should be the goal of every therapist. So let me throw out another term, trusting relationships. So trusting relationships, how might you define that differently than therapeutic relationships? Because I see those get intermixed a lot. Yeah, and as we were talking about the therapeutic alliance, trust is an aspect of that. Mm -hmm. But just because you trust somebody doesn't necessarily imply or guarantee that they're going to do what's developmentally best for you to be able to restore to health. So those are two different things. We can trust people in actually somewhat unproductive or unhealthy relationships. Mm. You can trust them. You might even trust them to do what's not best for you. But that doesn't mean that it's therapeutic, that it will, is in the process of restoring to health or taking you along the most optimal path to growth and to healing. So those are two separate things, even though trust is a part of the therapeutic relationship. So trust is about having some reliability and predictability. Um, so you might have that in someone, but that person isn't necessarily um, advocating for your health or well-being. Or I think of someone that's fragile, uh, tangentially connected to my life, my mail carrier. I have a very trusting relationship with the person who brings me mail. It shows up every day, like clockwork. I know exactly when it comes. 
but that I don't, I wouldn't say I have a therapeutic relationship with that person, even though I have a lot of trust in the person. I, I would agree. And it doesn't necessarily mean as you trust him to bring your mail, it doesn't mean that he's inherently this safe relationship mm -hmm. that understands really neurobiologically how to create that sense of safety and that he loves healing property. The same way a caregiver or a clinician yeah. or someone else that's advocating for you. Yeah, that's a really great question. Trusting relationship is inherent in therapeutic, but one doesn't necessarily mean that the other's existing. So connected, especially as we talk so much about relationships, one of the buzzwords that, have, that we hear a lot is attachment. And so people are always talk about my attachment. And what is that? And how do you break that down? And how do you think about attachment in a way someone really unfamiliar with mental health and relationship could understand? Attachment is a thrown around catchphrase just as much as trauma is. Are you right? Yep. Trauma or, you know, attachment gets thrown away and then uh, thrown around. And we often hear the extremes, especially in our field, we hear this extreme. Well, there you have reactive attachment mm -hmm. disorder. And then this is, we've all heard about these horrible cases. Um, so to set the context for us, especially understanding development, everybody is in this process of development. Like it or not, we've all been born and we experience secure caregiving. We don't come out developed. We don't come out fully developed. So we go through this interpersonal experience with others who are caregivers to us. And if we have reliable and predictable caregiving that meets our emotional or physical needs, I mean, picture being a young baby and you, if you get hungry or you have to uh, go to the bathroom or whatever that is, you have some implicit urge or need in that moment, you cry. And if that reliably and consistently gets met and it's safe, that's actually the term we call a secure attachment, that we develop this secure attachment with somebody else who is a reliable, what we call a primary reliable caregiver, that they're able to, I'm going to just, uh, we'll talk about the term, but we'll attune, be able to mm. empathize with where we're at developmentally, what our needs are. And when we're small through that developmental period, zero through approximately five years of life, that is the most vulnerable window that our attachment security needs should be met. So when we talk about attachment, it's this really this bonding between two people. But it's really highly reliant on the caregiver to be able to know what are my emotional and my physical needs and how are you going to best reliably and predictably meet those. So when those aren't mm -hmm. reliably met, we can then we get into these alternative forms of and exist on a continuum. We move from secure attachment on one side through what we would call anxious attachment, or just for its simplicity, and then we move to avoidant attachment. There's all kinds of descriptors in between this continuum, but for simplicity's sake, there's really these three different forms. If we have security on one side, anxious would be in the middle, and then avoid it on the other end. And really, what does it mean? Securely that, gosh, I get hardwired that my needs are met. I, and then I become to experience, my body knows experientially that my needs are going to be met. Then if those aren't consistently met and those are might intermittently be met, 
Like, hey, when I see this caregiver, when I cry, sometimes Mm -hmm. they pick me up. Sometimes they feed me. But other times they don't. They ignore me or or yell at me or some negative interaction. And if that's inconsistent, Mm -hmm. then I become what? I become anxious. Because you don't know what to expect. Yeah, you get hardwired that I'm not sure what to expect. So this is where this anxious, I get, and this is where the term push and pull comes from. The anxious attachment really ends up, especially in adults, where they push and pull relationships a lot. We've all experienced this. So that's a that's a really intense form of anxious. Where avoidant, if we move all the way, avoidant attachment is most often experienced because we just have predictable chronic negligence, abuse, avoidance, maladaptive caregiving, whatever that might be in that child's life, um, then we end up with something called avoidant attachment where the caregiver truly hasn't been there. there, And then we move into being self-soothing. And then we get, I use the term hardwired, hardwired, but we become conditioned then below our rational brain to not trust caregivers, and we actually then do we do, do what? We then avoid intimacy and secure attachment. We go out of our way to say, oh, somebody's trying to get close to me or something. And this is where oftentimes we hear the term sabotage. Mm. We're sabota- they sabotage relationships. Oftentimes that's a really good form it's, if it's chronic and they just don't want and they'll avoid any sort of intimacy with people. That's truly avoidant attachment. And so you're saying it's not that their need is less. It's just that their, uh, would you say, fear or uh, overwhelmness with intimacy? I'm just thinking it's, these aren't people that are just, oh, I'm fine being alone and my emotional needs are met being alone. But you're actually saying it's so threatening to be in connection that it's easier to be alone? Uh, it's less, it's less painful. Less painful. I would use the term painful, and it's less anxiety-provoking. So if you're in this place where you've experienced chronic neglect or abuse or whatever, imagine just the thought of being close to somebody. Once that person should have nurtured me and taken care of me, now fills me with all kinds of anxiety and fear that those experiences will reoccur. I think the hard thing, Jake, and especially we share this is a lot, is that it's a deep visceral reaction that when we have this early experiences of whatever we land on this attachment scale, you can't be talked out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure even in your own experience, how many people have tried to talk people out? Yeah. But it's a, it's a deeper visceral reaction. Or I'm trying to think of how many parents try to convince their kids of like, you're safe. You're fine. Of course, I'm your, I'm here for you, buddy. And, um, you're not going to use cognitive strategies to change what's hardwired in your, in your attachments, in your attachment style. So I like the word attachment because we all have, we all exist somewhere on the continuum of attachment. And if you're framing it that way, it's, uh, I, I won't say easy to see, but there's a lot of parallels you say. So the first zero to five years of your life, but then if that attachment style continues to replay over and over again, What's that look like for that young child who's now an adult and now in romantic or intimate partners of their own self and their own life, and then they have kids, and what does that play out? I can understand how it becomes a this really complex web of 
par- different partners and their attachment styles and yeah, what are they what's happening with their kids and all, all of these dynamics start playing out well and one thing i've always appreciated is that you bring a certain expertise around understanding family systems and talk about intergenerational and these patterns recreate each other and it's yeah go ahead so in a way if i'm anxious in my attachment with my caregivers from when I was zero to five, um, I'm, I might tend to play that out with my adult attachment relationships, including who, I'm, who, I, who I choose to partner with and how I manage conflict and stress and how we manage boundaries with each other. And in some ways, our attachment, we end up recreating it in our adult relationships, despite our best efforts. For, for sure. And that's why, especially... Uh... Having the lens, when you go to see a therapist, it's important for them to be able to, for for the average person to be able to ask, like, is it important for us to understand our attachment style and our attachment patterns? Because we know that therapeutically, we have to do with the parents as we want them to do with the child. Because how many parents we think are older, they should know better and so as therapists, oftentimes we t- try to talk them into doing what's right for the child, but we often miss that the parents are just enacting generations of attachment cycles. So we all of a sudden need to think about it differently and how do we create experiences to give them a new sense of security around what attachment is so then they can do it differently with their own child. But you notice yeah. the system plays out. Yeah. And it repeats itself. So we're interrupting that. When you talk about attachment, it feels very tangible because you ground it in like neurobiology. It's not this abstract concept of feelings. There's actually some science and something tangible and concrete about that. So I'm wondering if you can just share a little bit about brain development, what that looks like. I know you've talked about the hand model of the brain, but yeah, I wonder if you can go through that with us. Dr. Dan Siegel, who is interpersonal neurobiology, was really the developer of and I've uh, used this, and we use this to do trainings when we're explaining it to people that the hand model, the hand as it's oriented like this, and you can see it kind of almost looks like a brain and it sits here, is that we have the forearm is represented um, as the spinal cord where our central nervous system exists, our autonomic nervous system. And then as we open up this hand, our palm, this would be called the midbrain. It's a great analogy or an example of, of the midbrain wherever a lot of our primal and reptilian experiences exist. And then the thumb is representative of our, our subcortical system, the emotional epicenter of our brain, where our amygdala, we often hear the term amygdala exists, and that's where our implicit or emotional center exists. And then we have our cortex, our neocortex or cortex just being the last part that is is responsible for our executive functioning, our impulsivity control, delay of gratification, cause and effect. effect. Yeah, even empathy and reciprocity. Mm -hmm. A lot of these terms that as parents are developmentally pretty important. We know that science says we develop stem up. Mm. We develop stem up. So the last part of our development is really about this executive functioning. And I always use the term, think about a little bit of, think about a baby who's crying. Hopefully we don't ever say, if the baby starts to cry, we don't say, well, now hold on, baby, let's, let's talk about this. Uh And 
Now, are you really hungry? Now, let's think about it. You just, we don't use cognitive. You've just got a bad attitude. You just got a bad attitude. You we're should change your bad attitude. Yeah. Right. So I'll try that on my infant. So, <laughs> so that would be a misattunement. So hopefully we don't do that. And we understand that, gosh, even in real time that we see that people develop stem up. And then it's not upwards of 25 to 27 years of age in normal development is this rational, the very last part to develop is actually touching or connected to, and if you wrap your hand around, you can feel the tips of your fingertips touch the base of your thumb, which is the subcortical at the limbic system, and it actually touches the base of the brainstem. So we know the very last part of, of normative development, healthy development, as, as we said, we can actually feel that regulating, regulating our emotions and how our bodies are connected has a lot to deal with our rational brains. Mm -hmm. And the key thing here is, have we ever known anybody to come emotionally get triggered and their rational brain literally becomes disconnected from their feelings and their bodies where no amount of rational discussion will talk them into having this control. So we call the term flipping your lid. So this would be like the person who gets angry and just ends up saying a lot of things. So they're not censoring themselves. They're not thinking about cause and effect and morale. They're just acting on pure emotion. I feel this way. So that emotion comes out of me and it's because this is happening. There's no, no censoring or any, any, anything like that coming, going on. It's just pure emotion. Yeah. And especially spending time with families in the therapeutic office or a therapeutic situation. How many, how many parents even are emotionally triggered? Yeah. Right. Or, or the, the child themselves is emotionally triggered. So most of the time, people coming into the therapeutic office are emotionally feeling something and, and they're usually triggered or they're, they're compensating because they don't have this connection. So it's about us as being in the therapeutic relationship to understand and be able to accurately assess where they're at emotionally and developmentally. Is, is this, so this flipping your lid, is this a chronic or an acute situation because i can think of times where i'm playing basketball with buddies and someone gets mad and flips their lid and then 10 minutes later we're back to being buddies um but i can also think of people chronically living in the state of uh, pain and suffering and loneliness and all of those things so should i be thinking about this as one of the other chronic or acute that's such a terrific uh question because it really depends, and we call the, the term is called window of tolerance, mm. that some people are able, you're able to go play basketball and have these moments where it's like, oh, my lid is flipped, but then we're able to repair really quickly and return to the state of regulation. When you think about somebody with severe developmental trauma, severe developmental disruption, or there's been some real traumatic experiences, oftentimes that lid can be flipped and they can be stuck in what we call a sympathetic reaction, be it fight or flight, or even a place of collapse or dissociation. So it's really the, the question is right, Jake, because as a therapist, we should always be assessing how, what is their functionality? And the point is, is to get them to come back down. Well, how we develop this connectivity is through a word called co-regulation. That this experience with a primary caregiver who has secure attachment and meets your needs, that's where this experience of co-regulation helps this development where it puts you on. So we need repetitive, reliable experiences of co-regulation constantly to help us bring our lid back down.
And then we open up our window of tolerance, believe it or not, because of this interpersonal relationship and the experience of security. And that's the co-regulation. And that is this experience of co-regulation. So am I thinking about, because you talked about sequentially how it develops. Does it also uh, sequentially, I, I guess, is this fair to say, if my brainstem isn't working offline, means I'm probably not breathing, I'm, my heart's probably not pumping, um, I don't actually care about what's going on above this because I have this more foundational issue. So I would never ask someone who's in a stroke or a medical emergency, like, how are you feeling today? Tell me your thoughts about that because there's this other issue. So can I also say similarly, if there's something happening here, that this has to be addressed before this, this is more foundational than the cognitive top-down cause and effect attitude, that stuff is. Yes, I, I would and, say. And co-regulation is the way to address this, is that? Co-regulation is a way to address this. So there is a certain, I would just call it hierarchy to, to this functionality. So we can talk about the reptilian brain being a little bit more primitive and we need to be able to calm that and then make our way up into the mammalian brain. So I would agree with you in that sense, that co-regulation actually takes care of, it helps to calm and do all of this stuff where we calm the body, the nervous system, we calm the limbic system, and then our rational brain is able to get online. Mm -hmm. That's true. Oftentimes that that can be missed though, and I know you've experienced this too, is oftentimes when there's a disconnection and there's mistrust of this, we get people who compensate where they try to be all cognitive brain uh -huh. and avoid emotions or avoid their body. Yep. And that's, that's a little bit interesting. And I know you've probably yeah. experienced it yeah. in therapy with some clients. Yeah. I think about the, the kids, a straight A student, they're in the honor club, on the paper, they're like this perfect kid. You're like, that kid's never that sick. How could they ever be distressed? And inside they're just wrenching because they've figured out all these compensating strategies that actually are effective at keeping people away. Like if I can keep everyone else thinking that I'm doing well, maybe no one will actually have, I'll never have to address and see and sit with all this pain and hurt. And it's so painful and isolating. And over time it just mounts and mounts and mounts. And, and so oftentimes as primary caregivers, we can get parents in who, who miss that. Yeah. Because they might actually speak their own language of using rational thought to fix. Because we think of flipping our lid as someone who's like enraged or off the wall or going crazy. And that's not always what it looks like. Oftentimes we have lid flip even when we have hypo behaviors. What we would see, I often call it the hoodie, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> if we pull the hoodie over, I'm isolating, I'm withdrawing. Sometimes it's the perfect kid and you don't realize they're actually in a state of fight or flight, but they might be performing in the right way. I think even we recently have a had an article come out that maybe you contributed to called Smiling Depression. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, that was a really great read Yeah, um, about how people can be smiling as a way to maybe even stay in this place of depression. Like, I don't know how to address it, but I, I put on this front. And, and it's, you're so well said about, I'll... I'll maintain this cognitive approach and it's not that they want to be alone but it's like please no one asking me about how i'm feeling because then i have to feel so let's just keep it cognitive and intellectual and theoretical um so that i never can fully integrate 
Yeah, that's, that's and, and I appreciate you going through this because we always talk about the most beneficial thing that we can do is provide attuned interventions. Because mm-hmm. lots of times, because of our own stuff, we might move into and misattune with if their lids are flipped, we can often go for cognitive fixes. And that's a misattune because we're emotionally triggered. Oftentimes we have these cliches or platitudes that are technically right. I remember being uh, losing somebody really close to me and I was at the funeral and there was a line of people coming down and giving their condolences and you receive a hug and then that person looks at you and says, they're there, time will heal the wounds. Mm. Technically you're right, but it's a misattuned thing to say because I didn't want to hear that in the moment. Yeah. Cognitively you're correct, but I wanted to feel connection with others, not the cognitive platitude. And that actually made it feel worse to me. Because in a way it was, if, if I was the one saying that to you, I can imagine myself saying, I don't want to sit with your grief. It's Please, it's too hard for me. So you'll be fine. Let's just all go back. You'll be fine and it'll be okay. And life's good, which feels totally rejecting of your right now in the moment experience emotionally. Yeah, yeah. It takes a really brave person to say, it feels like hell right now and I'm willing to go through hell with you. And that's a pretty self-aware, elevated place to be. But it makes a lot of sense. I always tell parents that <laughs> the best examples, I said, imagine you have a, have a teenage girl and she's getting ready and there's a, let's just say there's a big event or a dance coming up and she's trying to get ready. And, you know, parents are downstairs waiting and she's up there getting ready and the hair's not going on. The dress yeah. doesn't fit right. There's a blemish on her face. Just nothing's going right. And she walks down and she says, oh, I feel so ugly. And almost instinctively, the parents say, no, you're beautiful. What are you? You look amazing. It's a cognitive fix. And it's more about the caregiver's discomfort, their inability. And so we want to do what mm. developmentally where's that that young lady at her lid is flip because she's experiencing what gosh i don't feel pretty i don't know that i'll be accepted i don't know i'm worth that oh my gosh there's all these mm. feelings involved yeah. and so for us to help them see okay what what uh, let's attune what is that young girl expressing what does she need right now her actual lid is flip she's having feelings and instead of going for a misattuned cognitive fix we want to do what? We want to go towards the emotion and maybe even say, wow, that is so tough. I'm seeing that's really, if I'm you, I wonder what is that like? And we can use empathy and curiosity to then what happens? Oh my gosh, I'm actually safe. I do feel valued. I know that there's care. I can now have an experience of co-regulation. Yeah. And feel much better and connected. So I don't want to, so. Yeah. I want to make sure we define this really clearly because you keep talking about co-regulation and basically I hear you saying this is the problem and co-regulation is the answer. So just unveil it for us. How do you co-regulate specifically? Let's co-regulate. Or at least that's the question parents always ask. All right, tell me what to do to co-regulate and here I go, I'm doing it. Yeah, and we actually want to encourage this 
through some research specifically if if you're you know if people are interested the work of Dr. Stephen Porges is really fundamental when it's talking about this experience the evidence or the scientific what happens neurobiologically around co-regulation he clearly states co-regulation is a biological imperative in development so developmentally we need to experience co-regulation repetitive reliable experiences of co-regulation We'll go through the indicators in a second. But that experience of co-regulation, if we get that repetitively and reliably, then we can move into what we call Mm self-regulation. Self-regulation is actually what we're after. How many parents will say, can you help my kid to self Can you help them? Give them some tools. Use their coping skills. skills, Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of have to smile and say, well, we can give them coping skills, but unless they know how to co-regulate and Mm self-regulate, The coping skills aren't real effective. So mm, so we get this shift in thinking because co-regulation leads to an ability to self-regulate. And then once you have repetitive experiences where you can self-regulate, then actually what's a, a fascinating phenomenon is that you can go one step further and move into adulthood co-regulation, mm-hmm. which actually meaning and purpose in life comes from being able to not be relying on parents anymore for your secure base but you can meet peers and others and actually develop secure relationship and secure attachment with them. And this is intimacy within healthy. So I was gonna, that's, that's what intimacy is, is partners just taking turns doing this yeah. and supporting each other through it, throughout life. And isn't that wonderful? And, isn't that, and actually, when we move into adulthood co-regulation, this is where being able to return it and have children of our own or being able to nurture others is really rewarding. So we, what we talk about is we have indicators to co-regulation, indicators to co-regulation. So first of all, we talk about what is one of these indicators is uh, eye contact, this vulnerable eye contact. I'm sure you have this experience too, is that people come in and they'll be a part of the treatment and it's really a struggle to make eye contact. Yeah. And not the, I can't stand you or you're ticking me off eye contact. It's the, just the, I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be seen, so I'm going to look away. I feel so alone. Yeah. So avoidance of eye contact is one indicator that, uh uh-oh, we're not co-regulating. So when there is co-regulation, eye contact. Another one is proximity. Uh I love to talk about proximity. What happens when people get dysregulated most of the time? I said regulated and dysregulated. What happens when they move away? They'll actually flee or they, they take off or they'll move away. And so that's one of the signs. But also we know, too, is that they'll actually move into close. Oh, uh-huh. So we've served a lot of clients, yeah. you and I. I'm sure that resonates with you. Yeah. Uh-oh, we get a little bit of lid flip or we get a little bit dysregulated or even my maybe my natural state is I'm in this place of not really of disconnection and I'll actually move in for some indiscriminate touch mm-hmm. and get too close or I just want the hug and it's like, ooh. So being... Coming too close too quickly or taking off is a real indicator. Um, one that follows that is what I, we call receptivity to safe touch. Mm-hmm. Lots of people with developmental disruption or fear of intimacy or trauma, they actually don't want to be touched. And we call this safe zone from the back, from the elbow back across to the other mm-hmm. elbow. It's actually, we know that's the safe zone, but it's really about, gosh, it, don't touch me or that's uncomfortable. Or, like I said, they want too much touch. Right. Or it's outside of the safe zone and it's, it's, it's too much or there's, 
it's too much of a, of a intimacy issue. And in that case, it's keeping them dysregulated, that too much safe touch. Yeah, can actually. It's feed, not actually safe. It, it's it, not. it feeds into it. So we've got eye contact, proximity, receptivity to safe touch. Uh, next one is called congruence of affect. Mm-hmm. Congruence of affect is one of these indicators where we know that there's a difference, inconsistency between what I'm expressing, maybe verbally I'm expressing, and what it's showing on my affect. So lots of times we've seen that people's trauma, when we ask to share the story of their trauma, they will tell you the facts of the story. But when the emotions come up, they're just facts of emotions and the, and the affect can remain flat. Uh huh. Almost like they're reading it off a newspaper. They just read because here's the yeah. You know, this happened and this happened because they're actually disconnected mm-hmm. from the emotional experience, Mike. Or I've even seen people laugh it away. I hope that was the worst day of my life. But what can you do? Yeah, it's heartbreaking. I've even actually seen real tragedy of, I mean, talking about real trauma yeah. and 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 people smiling or laughing through these, describing these horrible experiences. And you're like, oh, that's incongruent. So we know that there's disconnect. So that's for it. And the last one we talk about is receptivity to empathy. Mm-hmm. When people reject empathy, oh man, if I'm you, I'm really hurting. If they reject empathy, we know that there's they're actually, they're not co-regulating because they're filled in this place of what we call shame. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, that's, I, I don't want you to empathize with me. I, want, I need to stay in this place for whatever reason. So we've, we've got these five indicators, and I always love to say, what do you notice that's surprising that's not on the list? Anything, what sticks out to you, Jake? Uh, homework assignments <laughs> and obeying the rules. And uh, the big one the parents want to do is, like, I just want to sit my kid down, and if I just talk at them long enough, they'll learn the lessons and absorb it. It's, it's got to engage. And how, yeah. how do I just get them talking? And I, I think that's the big thing is that talking is not on the list. Talking, and this is, and when we look at it developmentally through the lifespan, this is what's so fascinating about this evidence base. Really looking at it this way is that it goes for anybody and everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can even think about your own life and my life, or those people around. Like, no matter how old you are, it's like, gosh, if I'm really hurting and I'm dysregulated, talking is probably minimally effective. And I always say, like, oh, you know. Have you ever talked to anybody out of their shame? Yeah, no. You haven't because you need this experience. You need this experience of co-regulation that's founded in safety and boundaries and empathy. But but the trope is you got to talk about it. And I don't know how many parents I've talked to. They're like, just keep beating into the, you got to talk about this. You got to talk about this. You got to talk about this. And we kind of teach this through and say, actually talking, explain to me how you're feeling. It's tends to really over-intellectualize and over-cognizize. And then what ends up getting missed is all of the underlying emotion. And it's really a struggle for a lot of parents to just sit and feel with their struggling teen. Because um, again, it's like that person, like, you, time will heal all wounds. That's what we want to do to our kids. Like, oh, you'll feel better. Yep. I don't want to just sit. It causes me, as your caregiver, as your parents, so much pain and distress and fear and anxiety to just sit with your emotions. I just want to talk them out of you. <laughs> and fix it. And that's and oftentimes more about us as the caregiver than it is than it is the child. So that's co-regulation. 
And you talked a minute ago about attunement and particularly misattunement. Um, so if their lids flipped and they're needing co-regulation, but they instead they end up getting some other strategy, cognitive strategy, you mentioned that that would be a misattunement. Wondering if you can speak to misattunement and its relationship to uh, shame. Oh, yeah, that, that's a great point. And um, I, I do want to highlight that we talk a lot about the cognitive strategies. Cognitive strategies are super incredibly effective when we have attunement to that. So if, if the rational brain is online and it's able to process and think through and we've got that regulation and there's or self-regulation and we're in that window of tolerance, then it's, it's been shown. Evidence is really clear. Cognitive strategies are really incredibly helpful. The big thing that we often miss is that when is the lid flipped or when do we have this emotional override? Because we know that well-intentioned misattunements can actually lead to more shame. And we actually, if we tr well, many of us are really good fixers. Oftentimes we go into this field because we believe that we're really good fixers. And we've got some good cognitive strategies to do that. And that's probably true. But what we often do is we misattune with where they're at emotionally and developmentally. And this is not just for the client, but it's actually how the family system is working together, right? Yeah, yeah. That maybe all lids are flipped. And so they've learned how to manage those chronic states of lid flip. And they might talk at each other. We've seen families just try to talk each other into and yeah. create this or vice versa. dysfunction Everyone stays in their room yeah, and yeah, no yeah. one's actually ever really interacting right so it's it's about recognizing and helping families to do what to say oh gosh so if well-intentioned misattunements we have this lack of co-regulation right now what's essential in this whole developmental process is for us to understand that Repetitive, reliable experiences of co-regulation where we have secure attachment and nurturing, that is, those experiences create or hardwire us down here in the nervous system and the midbrain that underneath our rational brains is that we have value. And we call that a sense of self. Mm -hmm. That this neurobiological, we define it as a neurobiological experience of worth. Notice what I'm saying down here below the rational brain that's not fully developed until 25 or 27, we can get what I call hardwired, especially if we're a baby who's experienced continual neglect or abandonment, we get hardwired. Our rational brains aren't even online. We get hardwired not to trust adults or not to trust that intimacy. So we have another term for that. So self is developed, the sense of neurobiological experience of worth, is developed through repetitive, reliable experiences of co-regulation with trusted significant others. Flat. Mm -hmm. So when we have this sense of self, what the opposite of that, or what we would say in the, in the absence of responsive caregiving is this experience of shame or worthlessness, the opposite of a sense of mm -hmm. self. So there's a, a really particularly good book. Her name is Patricia DeYoung, who writes on shame. And she's very clear that shame is created by what doesn't happen in relationship by versus what does or that specific act or that's a specific experience. It's really about the lack of responsiveness and attunement in caregiving relationships. 
that's actually what creates shame. Because it never builds the neuro, the neuro pathways for a sense of worth and therefore that sense of self and identity never develop. Is that, is that right? It, it, that's true. Yeah. So if I never have the sense of worth, that is essentially the absence of worth is inherent, is inherently shame. Is inherently shame. And so one of the most important things that we can do in this relationship, in a therapeutic relationship, is be attuned to when the client is enacting, do they have core shame? How do we resolve shame? So now all of a sudden this concept of shame resolution becomes paramount in healing and development. And shame resolution is only done through this experience of empathy. Because the experience of empathy is an experience that happens on this level where I'm accepting your emotion, everything that you're feeling, I am there with you. And inherent in that is worthiness. I wouldn't be doing that unless you were inherently worthy. Yeah, that, that's so well said. And I, let's go back to the girl who's getting ready for the dance and she yeah. feels so ugly. Her lid is flipped and she comes down and says, I'm so ugly. There's the potential for a lot of shame. Yeah. I'm so no, ugly. No, you're not. You're great. Everyone not loves you. What are you talking about? You're crazy. Yeah, so that's a cognitive fix. But if we wanted to shift that and say, hmm, it's more about an expression to resolve, an experience to resolve that potential shame, and that's done through empathy, what's an attuned intervention that experiences, expresses empathy? And that's where we would help. Certainly, and the parents would learn how the skill of being able to say, wow, I'm going to set aside my own agenda and say, if I am you, I feel really ugly. I feel that people mm -hmm. won't accept me. Mm -hmm. I feel very lonely right now. And in one simple communication of empathy, you're experiencing, you're expressing what? I'm willing to set aside my agenda and bear the full burden of your loneliness With you. or your ugliness. I'm actually willing, even if you don't have the words, I'm going to hold that. I'm, I'm going to carry it. I'm going to unconditionally accept those deep, dark, lonely emotions. And whether you recognize it or not, we're going to do it together. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I'm holding the deepest depths of your loneliness, which are so black and just, ugh. And without the other really even identifying it most of the time, that all of a sudden, I'm holding your loneliness, I'm holding your loneliness, and we're sharing loneliness. Which is inherently a connecting, bonding. As soon as you do that, I'm not feeling, you're, we're together. It's hard to feel lonely and alone. In that. Actually, we've tricked your brain in doing that yeah. because those concepts don't, they can't they exist can't. together. Yeah. Share and loneliness, they can't go together. Similar, conversely, the parent's like, oh no, you look great. That dress is beautiful. And that perpetuates this experience of loneliness. Oh, I'm the only one who feels this way. And no wonder, but now my parents think I'm crazy for feeling this way, but I still feel this way. And I think parents are worried about like reinforce, like, yeah, you don't look so great. Like, yeah, you could look better. And they feel like if, they, if I'm empathetic, she's going to think I agree with her assessment. Yeah. And as a parent, I'm like, of course I don't agree with that assessment. So that's. It's a, it's a hard one that we have to teach people. Empathy is not agreement. Yeah. Empathy is not agreement. Because lots of times you'll get kids who say, what? Gosh, I feel so stupid. Yeah. Oh, I failed another class or I'm not performing or I, I didn't this. I feel so stupid. And what is 
most loving parents will say, what? No, you're smart. No. Oh, look at all the reasons why you're smart. And just and, and it's another misattunement. Yeah. But to use empathy is just to say, gosh, if I'm you, I'm, I'm really feeling, it's not saying, yeah, you are stupid. That's not what empathy does. Yeah. Empathy takes this place of, I'm, it's not agreement. It's just this ability to hold and accept that the other is feeling these emotions. It's not about agreement or confirmation. It's about sharing the experience, right. embracing. Which can be hard for parents because a lot of times they get stuck in this, I need to approve or disapprove of everything my kid does and I need to shape them and set boundaries. And it's very much me as a parent, as a power broker, trying to enforce or support my will upon you. And the idea of like, actually, empathy has nothing to do with you as a caregiver. Whatever you think or feel, I will set it aside because that doesn't even come in, into play when it's it's 100% about that child's emotional experience. So the caregiver just shows up for. We haven't even gotten to what the caregiver thinks about. It totally doesn't even matter at this moment. Right. It doesn't matter. And yet, I, I appreciate what you're saying, Jake. I, I can be empathetic to parents. It's yeah. incredibly, incredibly difficult to see your children's struggle and suffer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly difficult and to rise above that and say, oh, I'm going to go towards the emotion. Yeah requires so much of us to be able to do that. So going off of shame, I want to ask you about two terms and I want to ask you about them together okay. for a reason, but you can describe them differently, separately if you want. Um, but I think of it in extreme shame and one of the experiences that a lot of our clients are coming with, one of the catalysts is trauma. So I want to ask if you can talk about trauma and then the other term is resiliency. And I'm asking if you can kind of talk about those together because I want to make sure we understand them together. And they do go, they go inside together. And that's why you're asking the question, how do they, how do they relate or play off of one yeah. another? So let's, um, let's first describe, let's first de de describe resiliency and that will help to set the tone yeah. for what, how trauma impacts us. So the term resiliency, I, I think that term gets thrown around a lot too. We talk about resiliency in our culture. Yeah, which is often synonymous with just either n no expression of emotion, just be tough. There's one, one way to think through it. Or, And I think what's interesting is sometimes we misuse the term or don't conceptualize it the right way that we think um, survivorship is resiliency. Mm -hmm. And those can be vastly two different things. I can survive and endure is different than I'm resilient. So just, you're saying just having something negative happen to you doesn't by default make you resilient? No, because the term resilience actually requires that we were able to have a baseline and move through an experience and then actually return to that baseline is, is the term resiliency. So we go through an experience, we start off somewhere, we go through an experience, and then we actually return. And maybe we're better off for that, but it's out to this experience of being able to return to that, where just enduring or surviving is about I having this onslaught of experiences and I know how to survive them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm, I'm returning. So let's use, holding those two things as different concepts is important when we talk about Human resiliency, I like the definition is that 
healthy resiliency is about having an experience or a baseline of positive affect. Positive affect, where my nervous system, maybe I have co-regulation, my nervous system is calm, I know this experience of positivity, connection with others, not filled with shame, but actually a sense of self. So we have what we call a baseline positive affect. Resiliency is about experiencing some form of negative affect and being able to go through that experience of negative affect and then returning back to that positive state of affect. So I'm resilient through these experiences of negativity and then I return to this positive state of affect. That's how resiliency works. And we want to breed resiliency and be able to foster that. Now, when we use the term endurance or survivorship, if we have a individual who's experienced chronic depression or chronic trauma or chronic neglect or abuse, this is where the trauma comes in. What happens? We actually never get a baseline. Get back to baseline. We never get a ba- We never established a baseline of nurturance or positivity of secure attachment. That could potentially have never existed. So we're always in a state of surviving. Survive. Lots of people survive. They learn to survive. That's different because now if we don't have a positive state of affect to begin with, then we're just experiencing negative affect and we're just going through negative affect and that's impacting us and we stay in this place of survivorship rather than returning to a baseline of positive affect or regulation or intimacy or secure attachment. We don't ever return. We just kind of, on a linear path, just exist in the state of endurance mm-hmm. or survivorship. And I'm sure all of us can think about people who are really good survivors. Yeah. And they learn how to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's resilience. And, and true resilience requires relationship. Because mm-hmm. kind of the parallel is live, you can live a life like this and people can become very uh, skilled at being compensating for their lid flipping kind of 24-7 and, and they can even run powerful companies and do all sorts of things but never actually landing in this integrated, co-regulated space. You say it really well, Jake, and that's where... <laughs> The best thing that we can do, I always like to talk about, to really develop the skill is to be able to assess and attune with where we're at and create repetitive, reliable experiences of co-regulation. And if you know the indicators, because it's easy to miss people who exist in a state of compensation. And oftentimes, oftentimes we unknowingly reward people who exist in a compensation. I, I remember this wonderful young lady who had severe trauma and she was actually came into treatment with me and she um, had early developmental trauma. She was actually relinquished from her biological mother who had some severe trauma and, and drug use. And as she got older, she went into treatment. And what was interesting is um, there was an experience of sending her to a wilderness program, which was so wonderful for the interventions. But they quickly noticed that this young lady would do everything right and she was the caregiver and she would start all the fires and do the dishes and make all the meals and be junior staff. Hyper effective. Hyper effective and oh you should work here. You're just like a junior staff and 
he was in quickly people, it was a little bit confusing to most people because they would say, well, why are you here? You're doing all the right behaviors. So I existed in this state of compensation to do all the right things. But if we knew the indicators to co-regulation and looking for that, she actually wasn't receptive to safe touch. There would be a rejection of empathy. There wasn't the eye contact. There wasn't an ability to have coherence in her telling her story. Yeah. So, which is fascinating because we can easily miss that. It makes sense. Someone struggling with their sense of self-worth would work really hard to appear really competent and capable. And like, I'm going to be as likable as I can because I feel so unworthy. But yet it's like trying to catch your shadow. Like you'll never quite get it. And oftentimes we think it's malicious or intentional. Mm. This is where we have to remember the trauma to answer your question. Trauma, oftentimes when it's early, it's, it's affecting beneath the court. So it's almost an unconscious reaction. We talk about how people with shame, unknowingly, they actually look for ways to reinforce their shame yeah. throughout the day. Unknowingly. And yet we oftentimes as cognitive creatures want to say what? Oh gosh, there's malicious intent here. They're like she's being manipulative. Being manipulative. She's yeah, she is doing all those things. Or yeah, he is doing all those things. But what's driving it? And that's the whole attunement piece mm -hmm. to development is where is that behavior coming from? So would you say trauma is the state of being stuck, like uh, unable to return back to that positive affect? Or what, what's a succinct definition of trauma or a way that we can think about it in the context of all this brain development and attachment stuff we're talking through? Yeah, really great. So when we talk about trauma, I like the working definition of trauma is any experience or memory that exceeds our ability to cope. Mm -hmm. To cope. So what does coping mean? Coping means that we have some ability to make rational, cognitive, emotional, and physiological sense of our experiences. So if we can make all that sense of it, if it's integrated into what we call a coherent narrative, that our rational brain is talking to our emotional epicenter and we can say, gosh, that happened to me. I was in a car accident. It was really scary. My cognitive brain says, gosh, this shouldn't have happened. It wasn't my fault, but it was really scary. I know I had some physical pain from my leg, but I'm actually able to make sense and it doesn't dysregulate me or interfere with my daily functioning. Mm -hmm. So trauma does what? Trauma robs us of that ability and trauma disrupts our coherent narrative and it gets stuck somewhere. Usually it's in the body or it's in the emotional center that it disrupts our ability to cope or it not make sense of our experiences, our memory. Trauma has this interesting effect when there's gaps in our narrative, when people actually have gaps yeah. in their story, like there's a, actually there's another word for it, gaps in our story is another word for that is called trauma. Mm -hmm. So a big piece of trauma is actually being able to make coherent sense cognitively, emotionally, physiologically, makes, makes sense of that. And actually resilience requires this integrative ability. So trauma can actually, it exists somewhere where it's too painful that are, how many of us have known people have gone through a severe trauma and it's actually stuck below the, ra the rational brain can't access it. 
So just like when people have gone through severe yeah. trauma and have PTSD, the flashbacks exist here in the implicit memory. And it's, and so it's, it's stuck right here. There's not a cognitive way to control the experience of the here and now. And so now we have this reaction and I would hesitate to say that is more about surviving mm. with the effects of trauma. And oftentimes it's too hard to survive the pain of trauma and what it's creating. So we often move into compensating behaviors. If it's substance use or mm -hmm. a number of even sexual activity to a whole bunch of different. Because we're living in a state of here since we can't, because part of the narrative, I think of like, what's your self narrative? It's about meaning and purpose. And how do I make sense? And this happened because the world is scary or this happened because the world is safe, but sometimes bad things happen. However, we tell ourselves the story about ourselves or the world. And it's really hard to do that because that takes a lot of this cognitive and connection to this emotional process. So trauma really interrupts that. Well, and trauma disrupts it. And, and to build into your point is that the experience of the trauma often perpetuates this feeling of disconnection from others. Mm -hmm or trauma and having this lack of narrative or feeling this pain, what does that do to relationship? Shame and trauma, as your point, go hand in hand because how many people who struggle with the effects of trauma feel tremendous shame? Because then I, I'm feeling this, this is my stuff. It's preventing me from having rational relationships. It's preventing from people being close to me. And then it becomes built into the pattern because so the, therefore people aren't close. So then I continue to not get any co-regulation experiences. So I continue to not build the sense of self and worth. And so then I continue to feel more and more shame. And then look for ways to avoid and then, that yeah, pain. Right. So now we have addiction. We have yeah, all kinds of all these other behaviors. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into, so we've talked so much about the individual and some neurobiology in here. So I want to kind of just zoom out a level and think about the family. So I know... Um, especially when we're working with ch children, adolescents, teens, but also into adulthood, uh, we always talk about family, like family systems or family systems therapy. And I'm wondering if you can kind of put some words to that, uh, what family systems is and what it incorporates. Yeah, and why, why this is so important, I think, is because I've heard the term, I don't know, I'm sure you have too, is that in the most loving, compassionate way, We've had parents say, can you just allow, can you help to get my kids some happiness? Yeah. Can you just help to fix my child in a most loving way? And it's really hard to say, well, the child only exists within the context of this, of, of the family system. Yeah. And patterns of the family, as we've talked about, maybe it's attachment styles the way that we connect with others, the way that we either co-regulate or dysregulate as a family system, all that's going into the entire functionality of the child, but the child doesn't exist. The roles, rules, and relationships of family systems are actually incredibly predictable. Yeah. We think a lot about, uh, I think in our society, we're used to thinking really linearly. So A, causes B or A plus B equals C. And with families, if you think about um, 
So say you have uh, two, two parents, two caregivers, and maybe one is slightly more on the anxious attachment side, and one's maybe slightly more on the avoidant attachment side. They create this dynamic together where one's always anxious coming after the other one, and the other one's like, whoa, chill out. I got to avoid and kind of step back. And so when one avoids, the anxious person gets even more anxious, and then the avoidant one, it's like, whoa, they avoid even harder. So it just becomes this cyclical pattern that plays out. So it's not this linear A did this to B and the output is C. It's A and B develop this pattern together where through these thousands of micro transactions a day have developed an atmosphere and environment which enables C. Or so we could think about it, especially as we talk about attachment styles, what does that mean for a child who has had all these small but meaningful repetitive experiences of an anxious caregiver, let's say, and then that gets transferred or passed on to the generation, um, passed on to the child through those roles, roles and relationship patterns. And then our job is to safely create new patterns. Yeah. And that's really hard to do. Yeah. None of us change on our own. We all have to fit into a system and the converse of that is that we always hear you, you can't force someone to change. You can't make someone change. Well, we can adapt the system so much so that they have to exist in a new way. Yeah. They have to exist in a new way within that system. And so it does elicit a new response out of that person, even if they're hell bent on not changing. Um, so I, I, I do love that about family systems is that it gives us a lot of ability to see the pattern and then intervene in any one place. And then we can build in this new pattern that does become self, self-sustaining. And I, and I know that you've, you've said it best, Jake, that looking at the systems and systems theory, how things function, it actually removes this ability to have the target patient. Yeah. Because oftentimes systems, even family systems, yeah. it's really natural and easy to slip into, boy, they're the problem. Yeah. If we could just change that, that would change our whole family system. Yeah. And it, it, what's fascinating is a lot of times the children become what we call the symptom bearers. Yeah. As a lot of the dysfunction of the system um, gets placed onto the kids. And so then kids live up to that. Um, they live up to the level of dysfunction. I don't know how many times uh, I've worked with a teen and the teen's gotten healthy and gotten better and learned new patterns and strategies. And then um, shortly thereafter, mom and dad separate or the caregivers separate because they're like, actually, it wasn't ever about the teen. There was some other issues in our family and in our relationship. And we could kind of not intentionally or consciously dump it on the teen or on the kid. Um, but they feel the emotion. You talk about all of this stuff. Parents can, can uh, compensate their dysfunctional relationship together, but the child can't. So the child's lid flips, so the child gets in treatment, but then as the child can co-regulate, then all that mom and dad are left with is their own tension. And that's, that happens a lot. Yeah, what I love about the systems is our ability to reinforce how important these processes of co-regulation, uh, empathy, um, we all come, if we had perfect caregivers, maybe we wouldn't have shame, but most of us, didn't have perfect caregivers. Um, so we're all going to come in with some level of shame. And 
This family system gives us a really robust way to create an environment which by default provides for reg, uh, repeated and reliable experiences of co-regulation, which is what we know people most need. Um, at Embark, we also employ the CASA model. And this is new for a lot of our, uh, a lot of people haven't ever heard of CASA before, but it's a way to put all of this into action. So wondering if you can walk us through uh, the CASA model as kind of our, our big finish today. Yeah, uh, great. So CASA is really um, compiled through looking at attachment research, the science around development, the science and looking at the research does development of relationships throughout the lifespan. And the CASA framework stands for commitment, acceptance, security, and attunement. This sequential process that a caregiver provides commitment, acceptance, security, and attunement to a child. And when we have consistent and reliable and the caregiver knows how to attune, then we have experiences of co-regulation, which is really fabulous because we've already stressed that co-regulation is a biological imperative. When we have co-regulation, experiences of co-regulation, that is where the self or that neurobiological experience of worth exists. What's fascinating about that is that when we have a sense of self, words like regret, remorse, empathy, reciprocity, all of those words that we would all say are developmentally necessary and healthy for intimate relationships, finding meaning and purpose, all of those words require a sense of self. So how do we do that? Through commitment, acceptance, security, and attunement from the caregiver. They know how to attune, and that creates experiences of co-regulation over and over again. And when we have this sense of self-develop, here's the roadmap to do that. When we have that sense of self-develop, we're able then to find meaning in suffering. Because mm -hmm. it's always fascinating to hear when I say, how much is that client or that family suffering. And everybody will look at me and say, we're suffering a tremendous amount. There's a tremendous amount of suffering. We're all suffering. Well, suffering is a part of life. But if we can create this experience of CASA and have this development of that self take place, finding meaning in suffering is actually the essence of how we create joy, the product of a shared experience, joy. So joy finds meaning in suffering. Happiness is about the avoidance of suffering. And parents will say, well, I just want my kid to be happy. Well, I want them to experience happiness too, but I'll say it's a, more, it's a bigger value for us at Embark to give your family a capacity to find meaning in suffering. And CASA, the yeah. caregiver's ability to commit, I'm going to be here for you, to be accepting, which really means create an experience of inherent value for another. Mm -hmm. True acceptance is creating an experience where there's inherent value, that no behaviors, no language, none of that can change, that I find you inherently valuable. It's non-contingent on anything. that It's not contingent. So oftentimes we talk about acceptance oftentimes is forwarded or it's blocked because of 
expectations. You should be doing this. Well, you're 15. You should. Yeah. And it's really hard to accept the brutal facts of I might have a 17-year-old child, but developmentally, emotionally, they might be three or four. Yeah. And there's a lot of grief in that. And accepting that that doesn't change how I inherently experience the child is valuable, but there's a lot of natural grief involved with boy, they should be chronologically 17 and developmentally 17 and doing all these things. And, and maybe they're not. Yeah. And there's a bunch of behaviors. I like how you talk about acceptance because when you say that to parents, sometimes they panic and they're like, wait, I have to just be okay with any and every behavior. And I have to just pretend like I'm happy she's sneaking out or I'm happy he's doing all these bad things. And, and then I love how you talk about, well, Part of accepting is seeing where they are, but all part of accepting is also seeing what they need. Because if you have commitment, which is where it all starts, is you're going to provide the safety and security and the boundaries. So what does that mean for you as a parent to truly accept a kid where they are and what, it, what they need? And that really helps guide and direct your uh, directions as a parent. Yeah. And can I, uh, building up what you're saying, can I accept that the child needs consistent, reliable boundaries. And can I accept that I need to work on myself? Mm -hmm. And am I committed enough to do that? Am I committed to do that? And that's where the security comes in. Security is about actually following through with those emotionally and behaviorally boundaries, secure boundaries. We often talk about the most loving thing you can provide a child is consistent, reliable boundaries Mm -hmm. that they actually know. And expectations is... Is necessary in healthy, intimate relationships, for sure. But you actually have to start with inherent value. Because what's interesting is if you think about people in your life and they're really struggling, what what do they want? I want to know that somebody really accepts me despite my shame, despite my failings, despite my behaviors. Can Can I really, does somebody inherently find me valuable? So commitment. Link to acceptance. Then we have this security piece that the caregiver provides, the sense of security. And then the caregiver needs to know how to attune. Mm-hmm. Attunement is best defined by us as empathy and action. Attunement requires all these boundaries and securities, but it actually, it's me being able to actuate the empathy that I feel for somebody. And uh, when we have that attunement, then, like I said, that leads to co-regulation, which is really the development of the self. And when we have CASA, eventually we're able to experience it enough and develop that sense that we can then become, as we grow older into adulthood, we become the one who can then provide CASA to somebody else. Imagine how meaningful that is. I mean... I even think about our own lives. I mean, gosh, there was a point in time in my development, like, I needed CASA for all these I couldn't imagine having my own children. And now I'm providing that to them. Yeah. What a wonderful gift to me. Yeah. I, and I love how, so when you talk with parents and you go to attunement, that's like, yeah, of course I can attune. But sometimes they don't recognize all the prerequisites yeah. of attunement. Like, actually, did, well, is there safety and security in your home? No? Okay. Well, it's going to be hard to attune. If there's, if it's not physically or emotionally safe in your home and are you actually really accepting of your child and what they're needing? 
And is there a commitment? Does your child feel your commitment? If that, but I expect them that they should know better, Jake, right? Right, right. They're 17. They should know. They should know better. Yeah, that's very, very misattuned. Yeah. And then they come into a, a therapy session and they try to perform empathy, um, but they haven't had that, that groundwork. Because um, if you, I love to ask parents just like, well, commitment, acceptance, security, attunement, like, of course I'm committed to my kid. How dare you suggest I'm not? Of course I accept them. But when you start to walk through the steps, it's a really great self-check. And I do this as myself as a parent. I'm like, of course I'm committed, but oh, actually, where do I struggle? And my commitment to my kids don't waver, but sometimes the performance of that commitment, um, I might get stuck or the performance of that acceptance, I might get stuck in expectation or something else. So I really use the CASA in my the CASA framework in my own life because it's such a great framework for relationship and it helps me to check myself to see uh, where am I, how am I navigating towards the suffering, which is really also the joy right in the center. So awesome. I, yeah. It's, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, it's a great roadmap. I think you say, well, it helps me to check and it's, it's a great roadmap. So you're saying CASA culminates in this experience of joy. Uh, together experienced with relationship that's what gives ourselves meaning and purpose and i can't help but point out this is the roadmap to joy podcast and for us here at embark um this roadmap to to joy is means people and relationship and finding health and connection and really meaning and purpose in the suffering so uh the casa model is directly where we get our the title of our great podcast roadmap to joy well, thank you, Rob, for being here and talking through some of these really complex principles and being able to really break them down. I'm just glad we're addressing them because, you know, certainly we want to encourage people to think beyond the immediacy of what modality are you using? Are you yeah. doing CBT or DBT? Are you relationship focused? And these are some basic principles that we want people to go into, um, really just understanding relationships that how, what do I need in order to make it um, therapeutically effective? Yeah. Thank you for being here. We have Rob Jen, our chief clinical officer. I'm Jake Sparks. Thank you for watching uh, Embark's Roadmap to Joy. This has been episode two of our Mental Health 101. Stay tuned for episode three. Uh, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>